Welcome back to The Fighting Life. Today we're telling the story of a heavyweight boxer who reigned as champion from 1899 to 1905. He was big, strong, quick, with incredible endurance. Hailed as a Hercules of the ring in his era, today he's just a footnote to history and known for his loss to Jack Johnson in what was one of the ugliest scenes in boxing history. But before we get to where it all went wrong for Jim Jeffries, Chris, can you tell us where it all started? Thanks, James. Jeffries was born in Ohio, the son of a preacher. In fact, he said, My father used to tell me, if an enemy smite thee, turn the other cheek. I thought that was all right, but if he hit the other cheek too, whatever followed was his own fault. (laughs) So he didn't mind a fight. Yeah, they were a fighting family from way back, according to Jeffries. He says that they were involved in the Norman invasion on his father's side and they fought in the Revolutionary Wars, the Indian Wars. If there was a war, the Jeffries would get there. Um, On the mother's side, her father was a bare-knuckle man. He used to fight all comers when there was a fair or some sort of show. So they didn't mind punching on as as well as preaching the gospel. Sounds like it. What was his upbringing like? When he was just a kid, the family settled in Arroyo Seco, which is south of San Francisco, and that's where they lived on a ranch. And it was a really rugged life out there. And Jeffries credits a lot of his endurance to the upbringing he had. Like, you know, I guess um, if your father was going to say about a tough upbringing, what's the classic thing? Oh, like uh, walk 10 miles to school, uh, bare feet, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So Jeffries did an account of his life about what he'd do after doing the farm chores on a hot day. And he said he'd grab his shotgun, load his pocket with some cartridges, and then he would start for a hunt. I'd walk 15 or 20 miles barefooted through sand and gravel as hot as the top of a boiler and over rocks and brush and come home with a few quail or some nice fat doves. So, so he's not playing video games after school. He's, you know, walking 20 mile, walking a marathon almost. What a beast. So he's known for that incredible endurance, but he's also known for his strength. Uh, he's a huge man for the time. He's six foot two, 220 pounds. How does he build that strength? He always had really physical jobs. He worked as a boiler maker. He was an iron worker. He said that the iron worker's trade was something that really helped. He said, there's something about it that makes a man strong and wiry and enduring. The iron you handle seems to get into your blood and your bones and your muscle. So he's a really strong bloke. That, in terms of that iron working, there's a really good story. You wonder if it's legend or true, but he tells it as truth. Yeah. So he's working putting up oil wells. And he's up the top of these oil wells putting in these big 700, 800-pound iron plates, has to drill in the rivets. And he's up there looking out over the heat haze and he sees a piece of machinery that's starting to buckle down on the ground. And this machinery collapses and falls on one of his friends. So he's down there like a shot and there's a huge beam across this man and his eyes are bulging, his lips sticking out. It looks like he's gone. And Jeffries just gets his hands under it and manages to fling it off the bloke like it's a box of matches or something. It's like a superhero. Exactly. It flies off him. His friend manages to survive. And then they go to put this big beam back where it was. And Jeffries calls over three other men because he realises it's heavy. And they can't budge it. Jeffries claims in the end they needed eight men to put it back where it was meant to go. And then around, around the camp that he's got a nickname as being superhuman, the supervisor comes and points him out to people like, there's Big Jim. Yeah, he's kind of a all. And, you know, you'd say that story was, you know, baloney. Yeah. But 
with the other stories that swirl around Jeffries of his strength and endurance and just what a beast he was becomes believable. Isn't there a, another story about him fighting the mines, uh, fighting a bunch of people? Or Yeah, well, uh, Jeffries, when he was working in the mines, there's a story that there was these Cornishmen, tough men that loved to fight, and they had a hazing ritual where you had to walk down between them, down a, down a gauntlet, with right. men holding pick handles, and they would just belt the bejesus out of you. And Jeffries was a proud man. He refused to he's take not it. No, he's not gonna he's not gonna do it. But he does say, I'll take on the toughest miner here. Okay. So Jeffries fights this Cornish miner for hours. People are coming and going, people are having their dinner while they're punching on, and it ends when the other man can't take it anymore. And Jeffries is known as the toughest guy on site. That's one of those stories I put more in the legend side than the you know, more more myth than the reality. I heard a story about him getting pneumonia and curing himself by drinking two cases of whiskey. Is that is that? <laughs> no, I've read. I, he he tells that story as well. I don't know how much, but pretty much the cure was him laying up in bed and drinking as much whiskey. And he <laughs> says it would have killed most people. And I don't know if he's talking about the pneumonia or the cure <laughs> because it was a lot of whiskey. <laughs> So that fight, that scrap in the mines is unofficial. When's his first official fight? How does he get involved in boxing? He makes his way to San Francisco for his first professional fight. He he knows that he can you know handle himself. And he, being a fighter then, there's a bit of glamour and a bit of money, so it seems like a good prospect. His first fight that he's paid for is against a guy called Hank Griffin, a more experienced boxer. And... This is how Jeffries recalls it decades, decades later, and I'll read it because it tells a lot about his mentality. Griffin was a rangy Negro, plenty smart and plenty tough, but he very soon proved that he couldn't knock me out. He proved it by hitting me with everything he had, as often as he pleased and any place he wanted. I took it. It sounds funny to say, but I took it and I liked it. That way of looking at things had a lot to do with me finally getting to the top of the game. I liked it because I was learning plenty. So he likes pain by the sound of it. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't phase him. He can take anything that's thrown. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. That fight as well, the way it ends, Hank Griffin claims that he just broke his hands and couldn't go on. Ah, oh, right. Uh, whereas Jeffries tells different stories about how he knocked him out. It's, it's lost to time, the, the reality of that fight. But, yeah, the mentality of learning through pain and getting hit is, uh, is one that holds true for Jeffries. It sounds like a lot of... Fighters broke their hands on Jeffrey's head yeah. over the years. Yeah, I reckon that's safe to say. He sounds terrifying. Um, <laughs> so when we look at his fighting style, he's got this very unusual crouch style, even though he's a big, big fella. This um, Jeffrey's crouch, they call it. How does he come up with this? There's a few different people that claim it over the years, different trainers and stuff. He says it was all him. Yeah. Jeffries is very proud and very independent-minded. He makes a point of saying he came up with it when he was sparring someone and they belted him in the, in the liver. Right. Now, I guess the, the Jeffries, Jeffries could take a hit anywhere. You could, you could punch him in the face, you could box him around the ears, you could hit his jaw, you could belt him under the heart, but he couldn't take it on the... The Jeffries liver was his Achilles heel. And he says that get a punch there and it will give just about anybody the Jeffries crouch. So it was purely invented to drop that elbow over his liver, protect his liver, and then work with his left hand. And he found that was effective for him. He could still throw with power with his left and then finish them off with the right if necessary. 
and he was it kind of made him invincible. Yeah. Because no one could hurt him with a punch to the face, a punch to the head. And as long as he protected that <laughs> soft spot, he was never going to hit the canvas. So he turns a, his weakness into a strength sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he has a few wins. And then in 1897, he gets called upon to spar the reigning heavyweight champion, Gentleman Jim Corbett, ahead of his bout with Bob Fitzsimmons. Yeah, that's interesting. He's, although he's ready to spar and wants to spar, when he gets into camp with Jim Corbett, Corbett's got other plans for him. This is one where I've got to read the quote because it sounds too odd for me to explain. I'll read exactly what Gentleman Jim Corbett wrote in his book. At first I gave him the job of rubbing me down. I had four rubbers, one for each limb. He had a leg and that was all he attended to. But one day I thought I would try him out with the gloves. So it's just a rubber. As, J- as J- Gentleman Jim tells it, I think he's trying to undermine Jeffries. You know? Sounds like it. Yeah, because yeah, he was definitely called into camp as a big man they wanted with the intention to spar. So what happens when he, when he gives him the gloves? So what happened once he stopped rubbing and started punching? Yes. In terms of actual boxing, Corbett claims that Jeffries had no idea of the fundamentals. He said that he landed an uppercut on him and dropped him in the sparring. Do you think that happened or...? It's widely disputed. In fact, it's disputed by everybody else that was there. Nobody agrees that it happened. Jeffrey said in sparring Corbett, he realised that the heavyweight champion of the world could not hurt him at all. So that was a huge boost to his confidence. He did realise his footwork wasn't up to scratch and he had to work on that. One thing that Corbett did compliment him on was his amazing stamina. He said they'd do road work together and he would look over his shoulder and the younger man was always right there. The younger, bigger man always kept up. And even Corbett says that he was politely just behind him. He didn't overtake him. He probably could have beaten him. He was, and we haven't talked about how fast Jeffries could move. Long distance he had endurance, but he could, even, he could also run 100 yards in 11 seconds, which was very fast for a big man in those days. Yeah. Even before he started boxing, he would win money gambling against people in, in running races and they would underestimate how fast he was because he was such a big, burly-looking guy. I heard he could almost jump jump to his own height. Yeah, crazy well. stuff for someone yeah. of that build. So what does uh, Gentleman Jim Corbett's team think of him? They're really impressed and that's probably the best thing that comes out of working with Corbett is that he meets William A. Brady and Bill Delaney who handle Corbett. William A. Brady wrote about Jeffries in his book. For one thing, he said that Corbett never knocked him out, so he disputes that claim. But he did say, watching Jeffries, there was something about this punching bag Jeffries that made me and Delaney observe him carefully. We saw that he was a comer, and I at once made a proposition to take him east with me. So he's like a Homer Simpson character. When Homer takes up boxing, he just can't be knocked out. He just comes forward. Um, Takes everything that's thrown at him and more. So how does he progress from here with his career? He does really well. He's taking on a lot of the bigger names in boxing. He's starting to get big fights. He, he fights Gus Rule in a, a huge heavyweight in size, not in reputation, and they draw over 20 rounds. He takes on Joe Choinsky, a great boxer we've talked about, another draw over 20 rounds. He gets a win over Joe Goddard, an Australian fighter, who's touting himself as the Australian champion. He knocks him out. One huge scalp he gets in that two-year run is Peter Jackson. The Australian great. Yeah, Peter Jackson, tragic story. He was a great boxer of the era, deserved a shot at the title, never got his shot at the title. And at this point when he comes up against Jeffries, he's been out of the ring for five years 
and he's been he's not healthy he's been drinking and he gets beaten in three rounds doesn't come out for the fourth round yeah that's right it's it's he he gets dismantled pretty badly by Jeffries. Jeffries said that he was actually expecting to have a real test with Jackson and the man that got in the ring was a shell of his former self. So Jeffries wasn't proud of that victory, but nevertheless, he had that name on his resume and that was important at the time. It's a huge name. The next big move in his career after that fight, he goes over to the East Coast because yep. he's obviously he's a big thing in California now and he's getting in the papers. They, they hear about this Californian Hercules. They've heard a lot about. But it's no, a huge deal. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a huge deal, but nobody's seen him in New York. It's almost like, He was almost mythic, this big bear, this big Perky Hercules. grizzly bear. Yeah, so he comes to New York with a lot of excitement. And to build on that excitement, the plan is that he fights two men in one night and he's going to knock two men out. Sounds like something John L. Sullivan would do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's quite the stunt, and it doesn't go to plan because he breaks his hand in the first fight against Bob Armstrong, and he can't do the second fight. So the New York crowd think this guy's not all he's cracked up oh, okay. to be. Is this does that put a roadblock on his on his ambitions? If, if anything, it actually helps because it means that Bob Fitzsimmons, the reigning world champ, underestimates Jeffries. So William A. Brady is really keen to get Jeffries in against Fitzsimmons. He can know he can unseat him. And uh, he, he, you know, he's worried about getting the fight on quickly because he says, I was not sure Fitzsimmons would go into the ring because every once in a while we had reports about him playing with a baby lion and were afraid the beast might bite his hand off before the match was due. Sounds like Fitzsimmons. Yeah. So uh, Jim Jeffries must be 24 here. How does he feel about getting a shot at the heavyweight championship? He is really confident once it's proposed to him and once the wheels get in motion. He knows that, well, he believes that there's no way that Fitz can knock him out. He's confident that he can't be beaten that way. Well, Fitz is a much smaller man. He doesn't, you know, he's not never much more than 170 pounds in his career. You'd think he would be confident. Yeah, and he's got that granite chin that nobody is, you know, he hasn't touched the canvas. He says a fighting Fitzsimmons who, yeah, despite his size, was still a knockout artist, had put a lot of people on the canvas. He said, I hadn't the slightest fear that he'd knock me out. That never entered my head. I did think that he would probably give me a terrible beating before I reached him and brought him down. I expected to have my head half knocked off. The only thing that bothered me was the idea that he might be able to close both of my eyes and that in that case it would be hard to find him. But all the time I expected to get him in the end. So he's pretty confident with his physical ability. Yeah, yeah. He knows what he is. He can take a hit and keep going. The other, the other thing he said in relation to, you know, I guess the how daunting the moment was to take on this guy. He's a guy that goes out hunting in the woods. You know, he's, he's killed all manner of wild beasts. And he, he says, a fighting man needs to train his nerves as well as his muscles. The cougar was my nerve training partner. Cougar. A cougar. <laughs> Fitz could be as fierce as a wild beast if he liked. I had accustomed myself to real wild beasts. <laughs> so he ends up fighting the great Bob Fitzsimmons in 1889, Coney Island. And he beats Fitzsimmons with his brawling style. He gets inside and demolishes him. And he's now heavyweight champion of the world. Yeah, Corbett has something to say about that in his book. He wrote, So the wheel turns. This young fellow who a year before had been considered good enough only to rub one leg of the champion was champion of the world. <laughs> so John L. Sullivan was away drinking for a lot of his heavyweight <laughs> reign. 
Corbett was he wasn't very active with his acting that he was doing. Uh, Fitzsimmons was doing a bit of both. What was Jim Jeffries doing while he was heavyweight champ? Yeah, he was something new in the heavyweight ranks. He was someone who defended his title quite a few times. The other guys didn't really think that was necessary. So he gave Corbett a chance to regain the title. That fight went for just a lazy 23 rounds. Yeah, yeah he doesn't rush things, Jeffries. He waits for the other people just to wear themselves out on his skull. Beast. And then, and, then he, and then he finishes them off. He gave Gus Rulin a shot at the title. He fought Bob Fitzsimmons a second time. There's a rumour in that fight that Bob Fitzsimmons had loaded gloves, maybe plaster of Paris. I see you shaking I won't accept it. <laughs> we refuse to believe Fitzsimmons would do wrong. He does really put the hurt on Jeffries. He busts his nose, he cuts his eyes. The strangest thing is it gets to round eight and Fitzsimmons says something to Jeffries. Yeah, who knows what he said. Well, uh, yeah. What would you say to Jeffries after you've thrown your biggest power punches at just leave, like, go away. <laughs> you leave me like, get out of the ring. What do you want? But Jeffries, when he, as Fitzsimmons drops his hands for a moment and says something to Jeffries, Jeffries then proceeds to knock him out. Yeah. The reason I don't believe that Fitzsimmons had loaded gloves is because when Jeffries had to prepare for his second fight with Corbett, he actually went into camp with Fitzsimmons. Speaking of uh, camps with Fitzsimmons, uh, Let's talk about exotic animals. A lot of uh, heavyweights over the years have had exotic animals. Mike Tyson had a couple of Bengal tigers. Um, Mayweather had tigers as well. Bob Fitzsimmons had a couple of lions in his day that he kept. And there's a bear incident in this camp. Can you tell us about what happened there? There's a few versions of the story. The one I'll go with, the strangest one, is Fitzsimmons had a, a trick he'd show you know, people in camp where he put a ginger snap between his lips and feed it to the bear, and the bear would eat it out of his lips. Weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unnecessary. Jeffries apparently thought this was a winner and wanted to do it himself. So Jeffries goes up to the bear with a ginger snap between his lips, and the bear's asleep. So I, I guess... So leave it alone. Yeah, exactly. You, you let sleeping bears lie. But Jeffries decides to wake it up with a nudge to the ribs, boots it in the ribs, and the bear responds... Well, how do you think it responds? It reaches out and just claws him, rips his pants to shreds and cuts open his calf muscle. Yeah. That's not good preparation for a, uh, a title fight. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, that, that derails the prep a little bit. Luckily, they've got a solution on hand. What's uh, that? Rather than call a doctor, Fitz goes and gets his sewing needle and, and uh, yeah, sews it up himself. Just put some stitches in yeah, there. Yeah, put a few stitches in it. And Jeffries, with his, you know, outdoorsman wisdom, decides that it needs some air. So then he proceeds to go on a 10-mile run. <laughs> and, the, and it gets infected. And then they decide to call a doctor who cauterizes the wound. Jeez. So that's you know, a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Not your normal boxing camp. So he, he goes on to defeat Corbett here. And he cleans out the, most of the best boxers of this era. But there's one rising star that he refuses to fight. It's Jack Johnson, black fighter. Is he calling the color line here? Yeah, and pretty explicitly. Later on, there'll be a fight between Jack Johnson and Marvin Hart, a white fighter. And after Hart wins, it's a controversial decision. Hart looks like he's been through a meat grinder. Johnson's untouched. The referee gives it to Hart just because Hart was moving forward. Okay. (laughs) Even though he was moving forward into punches. After that fight is given to Hart, Jeffrey says, I'm glad Hart won. Not that it necessarily means we'll get in the ring in a fight for the championship, but because it puts the Negro out of the running. 
So as far as Jeffries is concerned, Johnson's aspirations for the title are finished there. And not long after, Jeffries actually retires from the ring. He's had enough. He's going to take up farming. So Big Jim Jeffries has retired after a five-year reign. But if we know anything about boxers, their first retirement is never permanent. Boxing Day in 1908, when Jack Johnson squares off with Tommy Burns for the heavyweight crown in Sydney, Australia. It's one of the most significant fights of all time, and Jack Johnson demolishes Burns, making history as the sport's first black heavyweight champ. Chris, how does the boxing world respond to this? Look, as, as reports get back to America, the people that were holding on to that colour line are not happy. There was you know, a significant proportion of the boxing public who thought that a black person should never be allowed to fight for the title. Jeffries himself, Jim Jeffries, pours petrol in the fire. He writes in the Los Angeles Examiner, Tommy Burns has his price, $30,000. Burns has sold his pride, the pride of the Caucasian race. Burns was mad, money mad. The dollars he coveted are his, but at what price? But this outrage that Jeffries himself is encouraging, it's, kind of, it's, it's sort of going to backfire because at the same time, or right after the fight, Jack London, the novelist, is reporting on it from Australia and he finishes his article with a plea and it says, But one thing remains. Jim Jeffries must emerge from his alfalfa farm and remove that smile from Johnson's face. Jeff, it's up to you. No pressure, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. The, the call goes out pretty early. For Jeffries to come out of retirement. So Jeffries, I mean, t- t- for what people knew of him, he is uh, a behemoth. He's someone who's undefeated. He's the champ. He'd retired undefeated. Um, and he's going to come back now and um, win back his crown. Um, how does he feel about being the great white hope, do you think? D- despite that, you know, fiery, that fiery article he wrote condemning Burns, he is not in a hurry to get back in the ring. You know, he's, he's well retired. He's ballooned up in weight to 300 pounds. This is not a guy who was keeping active, thinking, he could have to, thinking he'd have to jump back through the ropes again. He writes years later, with, after a bit more reflection, It wasn't ambition and it wasn't money and it wasn't the honour of the white race that pulled me out of retirement. When people wanted some white man to lick Jack Johnson, they turned to James J. Jeffries. The old stories about me got to circulating again. I'd never been knocked off my feet. I'd never been beaten, and they still called me unbeatable. They thought James J. Jeffries was the one white man to lick Jack Johnson. The newspapers and the public and my friends turned the heat on. I think no fighter ever took anything like it, before or since. The Reno thing was on me. That's, that's what he, the fight was in Reno, and that's, I guess that's how he likes to remember it, the Reno thing. I'm not giving an alibi. I'm the guy who said yes because he didn't have the guts to say no. I can see why he put the heat on me, and I quit feeling sore about it a long time ago. Sounds like he's still sore about it. <laughs> yeah, he definitely isn't happy. So Jim, Jim Jeffries feels like he has to take the fight against Jack Johnson. How's the build-up for this one? The build-up is huge. They're calling it the fight of the century, and it's not hyperbole. Everybody's excited by the fact that Jim Jeffries is finally coming out of retirement. They see him as the one man who can beat Jack Johnson. And for people who have a problem with a black champion, that is a big deal. There's a lot of tension there, and the press is playing up on that tension. 
within the black community, there are even people who are worried about the fight because they realise that if if Johnson triumphs, you know, there'll be, there'll be riots amongst outraged white people who can't handle the reality of a black champion. There's a lot of tension involved. It, the fight was meant to be in San Francisco, but because of the press it's attracting and how huge it looks like it's going to be, it ends up getting all sorts of protests against it. The Attorney General of California, he says, the whole business is demoralising to the youth of our state, corrupts public morals, is offensive to the senses of the great majority of our citizens and should be abated as a public nuisance and the offender's punished. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's not a fight fan at all. So then the, the fight gets moved to Reno. Uh, divorce capital of America. Yeah, it's a city where anything's allowed. So there's, you know, gambling, divorce, prostitution. So... And the journalists come flocking. The journalists come flocking to the town, not just for those things, but also to cover the fight. So there's something like 500 journalists turn up and are just sending news about news reports about everything that's happening in the lead up to the fight. So as we approach the so-called fight of the century, how's the preparation look for each fighter? For Johnson, it's fantastic. He he is supremely confident. He's having fun in camp. He's getting speeding fines as he, you know, zooms around. He's entertaining journalists at camp, cracking jokes, and doing some training. Yeah, you know, he knows he has to keep fit, but he is not expecting a tough fight from Jeffries. And that's also the kind of guy he is. He just exudes confidence. Jeffries, meanwhile, not having a great camp. <laughs> you know how he's been he's been compared to a bear by people? Now sometimes he's like a grizzly bear. He's a very grumpy, gruff guy. Really early in the camp, he has his first tough hit out. And he thinks he does all right, but it's the recovery that kills him. And he realises he's not the man he was. He used to be the kind of guy who had to be held back from training, but he realises he's old and sore, you know. And even a rub down, you know, it doesn't matter how many people do his rub down, <laughs> they, they can't bring the old Jeffries back. <laughs> he would often just disappear off into the woods to go fishing or hunting. <laughs> you know, his, his head wasn't in the game. Can't blame him, really. Um, so who, who's tipping who here? Uh, is is Jeffries the favourite or, or Johnson? Despite his bad preparation and his long layoff, Jeffries was still the favourite to win the fight. Wow. Yeah. And if you weren't racist, you had a good chance to make a lot of money. John L. Sullivan, a former champion himself, was one person who saw through the Jeffries facade and, and, the, and the press that was being put out there. Yeah, he'd had a long layoff himself before he lost the title to Corbett, and he said, you just can't come back from that kind of layoff. And he said, while he didn't like to admit it, he thought Johnson was a sure bet. Wow. He pulled back from that comment, and there's a good reason given in an article by E.W. Dickerson in the Rocky Mountain News at the time. Um, I've gone deep. <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> but, it. But Dickerson made the point that even though most of the fighters being interviewed asked about the fight, were picking Jeffries to win, they had privately told him that they thought Johnson would win. And the same is with other sporting editors. Plenty of editors believed that Jeffries was past it, but in their papers, they had Jeffries winning because they didn't want, they wanted people to buy their paper. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the story that Johnson was about to flog their hero wouldn't have flown off the shelves. So Dickinson's prediction is correct. Jeffries should have stayed retired. He's well past his prime when he comes back. Can you give us some details about how this fight goes down with Jeffries? We spoke at the top. Okay, we spoke at the top of the podcast about what a Hercules of the ring this man is. He's unstoppable. He's a behemoth. He's got one weakness. His Achilles heel, you know, is his liver. The Jeffries liver. Well, 
the liver does not come into play at all. <laughs> it turns out his Achilles heel is his jaw, his eyes, his nose, his temple. Johnson hits them all and hurts him a lot. He, it is the most humiliating defeat. It's a more humiliating defeat than Jeffries could have imagined. You know, this is a guy that never hits the canvas. He'd never been down. He's down repeated times. It is a massacre. And just to make it even worse, Johnson is having a ball. <laughs> it's like a party for him. He's joking with the crowd. He's joking with the corner. He's giving Jeffries advice sometimes. You know, oh, Jeffries, you got, maybe you should try this combo. Or, you know, keep your hands up. Come on, you're rushing too much. And then pop, 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 hits him. You know, Corbett in the corner. Gentleman Jim Corbett is in Jeffries' corner giving advice. Johnson's just talking back to him while he's punching Jeffries at the same time. This is a guy who is having the fight of his life and so much fun, and the crowd cannot handle it. You know, it is, yeah, you talk about humiliation in the ring. This is as low as Jeffries could have fallen. By the ninth round, he's practiced, both eyes are closed over him. He can hardly see the man in front of him. In the 15th round, it's all over. Jack Johnson knocks him off his feet. He falls half through the ropes. He's counted to nine, and he's cornered finally throws in the towel. And Jeffries is just left with a, you know, a whole lot of regret that he ever thought to climb back in that ring. We know that uh, racial tensions are very high before this fight. Uh, Johnson is the champion. The great white hope has been defeated. What is the fallout from this fight across America? Look, as we said at the top, this is the ugliest moment in the history of boxing, in the history of probably any sport in America. There's just widespread rioting. The powder keg finally explodes. There are, there are white mobs going through black communities, rioting, killing people. People are lynched for celebrating the fight. It's as ugly as you could have imagined. And reading Jeffries, what he said, not about that incident, he didn't, he didn't write about that, but he talked about the whole racial element. You get a sense that he almost feels regret or possibly guilt about what happened because he says the idea of, you know, Fighting to represent your race is an absurd one. You know, it was just a shameful moment. Yeah. And, and for Jeffries personally, what was the, the fallout? Well, Jeffries says after the knockout, he wrote, Jim Jeffries was out, through, washed up, and Jack Johnson had the old title. No argument. There it was. That was how it ended. That was the end of all the talk about Jim Jeffries being unbeaten and unbeatable. When people said James J. Jeffries after that, it didn't mean the same thing that it had before. That was what I'd had coming to me, I guess, since the night I pushed Bob Fitzsimmons over at Coney Island. Well, I got it. There it was. That's a great note to end on. Thanks for the story, Chris, and uh, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>